Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome right. to New York. This is is the Devil's Devil's State of Mind Mind Podcast, Podcast. brought to you by the Hockey Hockey Podcast Podcast Network. Network. Now here's your host, host, Neil Villapiano! Hockey fans, the pursuit for the Stanley Cup is on, and DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NHL, has an unbelievable offer for the most exciting playoffs in sports. New customers can bet $5 on any team to win and get $100 in free bets no matter what, win or lose. Looking to turn a small bet into a big payday during the playoffs? With DraftKings Same Game Parlays, you can do just that. Create your own parlay by combining multiple bets, like which team will win, how many goals will be scored, and more. It's your shot at an even bigger payout. DraftKings is safe, secure, and reliable. Best of all, you can deposit and withdraw your cash whenever you want. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code THPN to bet $5 on any NHL team to win and get $100 in free bets. No matter what, that's code THPN at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NHL. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions apply. See show notes for details. All right, Devils fans, we have a very special guest joining us here on this edition of the Devils State of Mind podcast. This is somebody that uh, had somewhat of a short time in New Jersey, but a very special time in the Garden State, particularly during the 2011-2012 Stanley Cup final run. He was one part of the of the famous CBGB line. It is none other than currently the television color analyst for the Minnesota Wild and former New Jersey Devil, Ryan Carter. Ryan, first and foremost, thank you so much for joining the Devil State of Mind podcast. How are you doing today, my friend? <laughs> well, I tell you what, um, one, thanks for the intro. I'm doing fantastic. Bringing back some memories there, the, the CBGB line, uh, the run in 2012. 
Gosh, ironically, we're, I mean, I'm watching the Rangers make it to the East final, uh, getting a lot of flashbacks of that, yeah. you know, that, that East final there. So, um, no, man, all is good. Yeah. Living, uh, living the good life in Minnesota. It's summertime. Kids are wrapping up school. Uh, the weather's turned. So, I mean, uh, I really can't complain at all. Awesome, man. Well, again, we, we really thank you for, uh, coming on the podcast today and, and talking with us and, uh, just a quick side note. Um, you were actually one of the first jerseys I ever got. I'm actually currently wearing it right now. Oh, nice. um, yeah, I actually got it during the 2011-2012 Stanley Cup run. Like You guys were in the conference finals against the Rangers, um, and it was around my birthday. And I happened to get um, – I went to the NHL shop in New York, and I got uh, your jersey. So this is actually one of the oldest jerseys that I own. Um, and uh, became a big fan of yours, uh, especially in your fights both against Brandon Dubinsky – and that big one against uh, Stu Bickle, the whole uh, line brawl um, late in that uh, regular season. And we'll talk more about that as we uh, go along here. But my, my first question to you, Ryan, is simply this. Um, when I was doing some research, I actually found out um, that you scored not only your first, but also your second career goals against none other than Martin Brodeur. So tell us a little bit about that. <laughs> yeah boy um so that was funny i brought that up to marty before too and he really dismissed it quite quickly so uh i think once upon a time i don't know what we were doing but uh we were we were trading barbs back and forth and i said hey marty just so you know i scored my first career goal against you and uh i scored my second one about eight minutes later and he said yeah but when you've played as many games and as long as i have um uh, there's a lot of guys that score their first goal against me. So I was kind of like, all right, all right, touche. You have, you, you have played a lot of games and you've earned that. Okay. One nothing, but I still scored my first, uh, but no, I was with Anaheim. I was with Anaheim at the time and boy, it was probably like my, it was late twenties in terms of career games before I got my first NHL goal. I was, I, I had, I had scored on Ilya Brzgalov, uh, with, but it was one of those ones where they reviewed it and then there was not enough time left. So it went in, but the buzzer had gone off, so they took it away. Um, and, and I had a couple situations like that posting out, and it was like, oh, my gosh, when is this first goal coming? <laughs> and it was, like I said, high 20s in terms of career games. And um, finally, I, I popped one against Marty Brodeur, and it was it was great. You know, there was some – I think there was some good players on the ice too. It was – Paul Martin, um, some other guys. I think Paul Martin was the the D man that I ended up beating to to get the shot on on Marty. So that was kind of fun too. Another Minnesota guy, but yeah, I scored that one. And then uh, two shifts later, I scored my second one. And I just remember looking up, being like, "Hey, I couldn't. You couldn't have spread these out. I couldn't have gotten one. It's like like 15 <laughs> games ago. You know, come on, right. talking right. to those hockey gods because they're in control of all of that stuff. But oh, yeah. yeah, so the first one against Marty, the second, and that's on the wall downstairs. Actually, first NHL goal, oh, wow. Road Dirt. Yeah, and then the game sheet right there, second one. So nice. First first game was a multi goal game. That was kind of cool. Well, you know, not everybody gets the chance to say that they got their first two career goals against arguably the greatest goaltender of all time. So that is uh, that's a pretty big thing for uh, for you to certainly do uh, very early in your career. Now, to kind of backtrack a little bit, you also played four games in the Stanley Cup playoffs in 2007 with the Anaheim Ducks, and your name is on the Stanley Cup. So talk to us a little bit about that experience at such an early part of your career being a part of a Stanley Cup championship team. Yeah, it's 
that was, I'll, I'll tell you what, it was actually probably challenging for somebody in my role to, to jump in and, and play and understand and, and learn how to handle it because uh, I had signed out of college and then I played that whole year in the American Hockey League and the, or the Ducks wanted something different in the playoffs and it was later in the playoffs. So I got, I got my first NHL game in the Western Conference Final against Detroit where we, uh, we played a few games and uh, then we get into the finals against Ottawa and uh, I played one game in that series, but again, they wanted a different look and um, mm-hmm. it was just a matter of, you know, I was just filling all, a role, a hole, bringing an element that, that they wanted to make sure they had in the lineup and uh, we're going to win. Mm-hmm. And it's okay. Well, how do you feel about this? Do you feel like you were a part of it? Do you feel, you know, like a, like a fly in the wall and, and where do you stand? How do you handle it? And, uh, it was confusing. It was challenging a little bit because I know it's not that easy. I remember, my, so my first, my first NHL game. I'm on the bench. Warm ups are done. The anthems. We sit down. We button up our chin straps. And right on my right is Team Musolani, and that's the furthest he had ever been in the playoffs in his career. By then, he was a Hall of Famer, you right. know, well established. Like it's Team. I knew who he was right. Like I idolized him growing up. And right. so that's the furthest he'd ever been in the playoffs in his career. This is my first game. I was just thinking to myself, <laughs> man, do not screw this thing up for Timu. And uh, ironically, I tried really hard. I almost did. But uh, good thing that that Ducks team was phenomenal. So they, they found a way to overcome it. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was different. It was cool. And it happened really fast. You know, I, I went from being a minor league player to – playing games in the, the West final and the Stanley cup final too, you know, you, you have yourself a, a cup party and what are you going to do with it? And really had no idea and any of that stuff. So it was kind of a baptism by fire really early on, but a great experience. And uh, I think it really solidified for me a hunger to, to validate that Stanley cup and, and the name on it and, and really forge out a career. That's why I, and I'm sure we'll get to it. 2012 was valuable to me in a lot of personal levels because I was able to actually contribute throughout a whole run and we did come up a little short, right? But six games against the Kings and provided value and proof to yourself that, Hey man, if, uh, if the ducks had called on you when they needed you and they needed mm-hmm. you for 20 something games, you'd have been able to do it. And what's really interesting about it is that, you know, there's a lot of great players in the national hockey league that talk about how, you know, um, how lucky some people get to get the opportunity to play in the Stanley cup final and even win a Stanley cup very early on in there career and um i think for you obviously that was a tremendous accomplishment to you know come as far as you did and to get the opportunity to be a part of a championship team even for a little bit so that is certainly impressive now after your time in anaheim you also played uh for carolina as well as florida what was interesting about it with florida was that you were traded to the panthers along with a fifth round pick in the 2011 draft which ended up becoming Corey Stillman, which I thought was kind of interesting because Stillman's, um, I think Chase Stillman is with the New Jersey Devils right now. So there's some devil connection with that, which I thought was kind of interesting. But now let's take you to the 2011-2012 season, because I think that's what a lot of my listeners want to um, hear more about, because obviously that was a very, very special year for the New Jersey Devils. Um, You were claimed off waivers on October 26, 2011 by the Devils. Can you take us through the process of being picked up by the Devils and uh, being, um, you know, acclimated in New Jersey and with the with the Devils organization. Yeah, so let's uh, let's tie your last thought and this one together because they they 
they do forge together here to, to tell a part of the story. I did get <laughs> traded from Carolina. I was injured at the time. And mm -hmm. Carolina, um, they, they ran their team very lean. So the roster is 23, but they liked to keep 20. And mm -hmm. they were a budget team in that sense. So they didn't carry the three extra players. And uh, I, I ended up getting hurt. I tore an oblique. And it didn't look like I was going to be back in time for their playoff run. So they said, all right, well, we want a piece. We're going to go get something. They get Stillman from Florida. So I think I just get traded out. Now, I'm not in management's office, but this is the way I interpret it. I just get traded out, a contract out, a contract in, mm -hmm. um, moving money out, moving money in. So just part of the deal to make it work for Carolina. Right. Florida, I don't think, was invested in Ryan Carter really at all. It was just, okay, well, we got to field the team here the rest of the way. Um, Ryan's going to be hurt. That's okay. We'll take on his contract. He can get healthy. If he doesn't play, so be it. If he does, great. I had to play in eight games or somewhere in that range. Yeah, but you know who the head coach was? Pete DeBoer. Pete DeBoer, yeah. You're right. Pete you're DeBoer. Right. So Pete DeBoer right. was the coach that I played eight games. He gets fired from Florida at the end of that season. He says, hey, thanks, Ryan. I really enjoyed coaching you. It was a short amount of time, but I loved what you brought. Said, okay, cool, thank you, um, good playing for you. And I thought maybe that was it. I ended up signing another deal with Florida. It was a two-way deal there. And uh, it was Kevin Deneen, the coach at the time. And he was yeah, getting ready after a handful the, um, of – I was going to say he's now the head coach of the Utica Comets, the Devils uh, AHL affiliate. Yeah, great coach. Good guy, great coach. And But he needed something else on his roster. I think we were struggling to score goals, and there's a guy that they thought that they could bring up, and, and maybe he'd provide a little bit more offense. So they're going to send me down to their minor league affiliate, which was San Antonio. Well, mm -hmm. I go on waivers, and Pete DeBoer, who's now with the Devils, and I don't know how that all gets communicated, but at some point he must have saw that come across his desk and brings it to lose attention or vice versa. I don't know how it works. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, I think I'm on my way to San Antonio, and I get a call the next day from Lou Lamarillo. We've claimed be off waivers. Uh, I talked to Pete DeBoer. They're like, hey, you're going to jump in and play? And boom, that was it. Became a devil just like that. So um, it's amazing. Uh, it's a whirlwind when, when something like that happens because you feel like it's, as a player, it's like, oh, man, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me, right? right? And then yep. all of a sudden somebody takes a shot at you or on you, and um, you feel like you, you've you've got to make it worth their while. So I, I came into that season with the Devils thinking, man, I've, I've, I've got to make these guys seem like they made a good choice and uh, they put some faith in me. And it really turned out to, to be a good thing for me. Um, I, I'd like to say that the Devils got to benefit from it too. We had a good thing going there with the CBGB line and yes. nice little run in 2012. So um, yeah, it, uh, it was fantastic, but that's the story. That's how it works. And uh, really it goes that fast uh, that yeah. being an NHL player is a, for, for some, you, you get the five, six, seven-year deals and you've mm -hmm. got some some staying power. But for the majority of the league, um, it's it's very fragile and it's a grind to just stay in it. And um, I was down to my last life a couple of times, but uh, when it's all said and done, it was a 10-year fight and I was able to stick with it. And it's fascinating that you brought up about how the majority of players in National Hockey League they usually get maybe one to two opportunities to really get themselves going in the National Hockey League. And, uh, you know, coming from a player like yourself and giving everybody the opportunity to really understand what it can be like to, you know, be put on waivers or to be traded and to just go from team to team, I think is a very, um, very, very interesting thing that you definitely brought up. Now, 
going into well during the 2011-2012 season eventually you know you started playing with burn with uh steve bernier and then obviously at the end of the year steven gianta uh came along talk to us really about how the cvgv line came together and what made it so special because when we look back now you know and it's been now over a debt or pretty much you know a decade since it happened we look back at it and we say that was one of the be- that was one of the most entertaining lines that the Devils have ever had. And considering all of the clutch moments that happened, particularly in the playoffs, in the conference finals, and even in the Stanley Cup finals, you guys, all of you guys brought different elements to the game, but you all complemented each other so well. So talk to us about how the how that line got together and how the chemistry just seemed to to go so well for you guys. Yeah, I'd say it's, it, it was for sure one of those lines where um, the sum equaled more than its parts, right? And mm-hmm. uh, I think you got three desperate guys together, and, and kudos to Pete DeBoer and Lou Lamarillo for giving guys a shot. Like Steve Bernier had kind of been similar where it looked like, hey, he, he was on his, I wouldn't say his last life, but it was, mm-hmm. where's he going to go? What's he going to do? And the contract he signed, and um, Steven Gianta was – I think he had been with the minor league affiliate for quite some time and right. really didn't get a huge look at the NHL level, but Pete gave him a look. And um, so I originally played the middle. So I played center mm-hmm. probably the first five years of my career. And I, I played with tough guys, heavyweights, and it, it looked like it was starting to become more of a scoring league. And when I was playing with some of these guys that, and it's, I don't want to like make it seem like they they're incapable of it, but um, like their job is not to produce offense and it's mm-hmm. not to put pucks in the back of the net. Right. It, it doesn't come unless you try it, unless you're good at it. And I'm not throwing shade at any of those guys. I'm, I fall into that category. But what I started to realize though, is that if, if I'm going to have some staying power, I do have to put up some type of points and I have to be able to produce offensively. You can't just be a line that runs out there, hits somebody every once in a while and then goes for a mm-hmm. change. You have to bring something else. So that's when I, I tried to move myself to the wing a little bit because then I would know, hey, if I'm on the wing and then I have somebody in the middle that I can play with, there's at least two pieces there that can drive some offense or you can have a chat and figure out how you want to play a certain way. Gotcha. Um, so that's where I moved to the wing. Mm-hmm. And I would still be able to take draws and still be able to play the middle. Um, but for the most part, I would tell people I play the wing. And yeah. it's amazing. You just say that stuff and you can play the wing or you can play the middle, whatever it is, you know, that they think you can't play unless you say you can. Right. Um, but all of a sudden, um, th- that's what it was is I was playing the wing and then they, they bring Steven Gianta up in the speedy little forward. And um, I would say the linchpin and the most valuable piece on that CBGB line was Steve Bernier because yeah. he, he had some skill and he was really good on the walls and right. he could win battles and possess the puck and he was smart. He could make short little area passes. So he's kind of the guy that could that brought it all together. And I'd say he kind of forged the identity. It was it was his game that that Pete DeBoer or that we could model our line off of and the identity off of where we're gonna play behind the goal line, go low to high, beat guys to the net. And right. if we if we had 40 seconds in the offensive zone, that was a successful shift. We didn't even have to get a shot on goal. And we'd go back and the coaching staff would be ecstatic, right? Right. But we started to get pucks up to the point. And you think of the blue line at the time too, it was it was kind of more of a heavy truculent blue line. There wasn't a ton of like high-end talent. It, I mean, it was Merrick Sidlicki, but it was Salvador, Volchenkov, guys like that, right? I mean, we had Andy Green, Mark Fain, 
um, to Linder and, and some other guys too that can certainly bring the puck to the net. But we're not activating our D. We're not jumping off. We're we're holding the blue line, and you're going D to D, shoot the puck at the net, beat somebody right. there, and get a rebound. Well, we all three of us just bought into that, and we're like, okay, this is the way that they want us to play. Uh, we don't have a lot of leash here, so we're going to play the way that they want us to play the best that we possibly can. And I think we're all on the same page, and we just went out and did it, and we played hard, and we, we looked at the guys that we were going to play uh, standing across from us and said, we're just going to play, and we're going to play our game, and you know, uh, we'll see if you can match it. And more often than not, and especially down that stretch, teams couldn't. And I think it's, it's ironic. Uh, I think in some ways there's a Boston line maybe in 2010-ish, a fourth line, Mm-hmm. that started to change things that made the NHL a four-line club. Mm-hmm. And then I think it was our line then, too. You start to see our minutes were in the first series were probably at their lowest, and then by the end, they're at their highest. Like they start to see, wow, this it is valuable to have four lines that can go, that can grind, that can score. And I look at the playoffs. Look at the playoffs. And I know I'm, this is a filibuster, but if you look at the playoffs, everybody says the whistles go away and it, there's less room, there's more checking, it's mm-hmm. tighter, it's defensive, and you've got to win your battles on the wall. You look at that, who's really good at that? It's your third and fourth line. They've been doing it for 82 games. So you see your top two lines start to struggle a little bit, especially in the first round of the playoffs, because they're not accustomed to the lack of space and the amount of time they have to make their decisions and their plays. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, you see third and fourth lines just be great early on because they're they've been grinding for 82 and this is their game they, they just have to play a little bit better so you start to see that and i think you see that more and more as the playoffs go on too that these these lines that can grind become more effective and score big goals because they're just good at that style of hockey and i think that's what our line did in 2012. And when I look at that line, I think what also you guys did a great job of is you embodied what a lot of Devils fans are, you know, grinding out type people. And you really, you know, made us, it it was just so entertaining to watch you guys grind it out every single game, especially in the playoffs. And I love that you were talking about teams now in the Stanley Cup playoffs because I was going to mention, look at the third line for Tampa the last two years prior to this year with Blake Blake Coleman, Barkley Goodrell. And uh, Yanni Gore, those guys, that was that third line that was really, really, you know, stepping up when the top six for Tampa was struggling at times. So I'm glad that you brought that up because I definitely can see how now more teams are focusing on having four strong lines, especially once you get into the postseason. Now, continuing to talk about 2011-2012, I want to take you back to the infamous day of March 19th, 2012, towards the end of the season. I think you have a Pretty good ideas where I'm going with this. Um, it was a uh, nationally televised game. Uh, you know, Doc Emmerich was calling it Rangers Devils late in the season. And right away, you, uh, Stu Bickle, and Cam Jansen all are on the ice to begin the game. And um, actually, it was Eric Bolden, excuse me. Eric Bolden was um, on your right side, I think. Cam Jansen was on the left side. And then you had Stu Bickle on the Rangers, a defenseman come up and take the opening face off with you. Can you take us into the decision-making from Pete DeBoer to put you guys out there right away? Because I remember also that John Tortorella immediately was shouting from his bench at DeBoer for putting you guys on the ice right away to start that. And then we had the line brawl, which I will also say made me become a huge fan of yours because of how you just absolutely went after 
Bickle and you came away with, I believe you had a broken nose and you were bleeding pretty, pretty, um, pretty profusely. But, but talk to us about that moment. Cause I think that's uh, in many ways, one of the signature moments of your career and one of the biggest fights we've had certainly in the last decade. So, yeah, so boy, you got to go back. I think it was, I don't know, two, three weeks previously. And the, the Rangers, a couple, yeah, the Rangers came in to Prudential Center and they Mm -hmm. started their fourth line. And Pete DeBoer put, I think it was our top line out there. So it was Parisi, um, uh, Kovalchuk, and maybe Zajac, right? And Mm -hmm. so their fourth line ran around. And it was obvious that they're, they're trying to set a physical tone. So it was, Right. body 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 on the skill guys and then the response there has to be okay somebody has to step up and be physical so that's where it was early on in that game i'd have to look at the game sheet i don't remember exactly but early on in that game i ended up fighting brandon dubinsky as the response to the rangers starting their fourth line in our building and running all those skill guys it's okay to start your fourth line but it was clear that the intent was to run these the, the, the skill guys and okay that's when you have to respond and say, okay, we've, we've got to settle that down a little bit. Uh, so so that's where the fight with Dubinsky comes in. And uh, it was a, a decent fight. I think I ended up hitting him, hurting him a little bit. So he didn't play a game again until that game on Sunday afternoon. And uh, again, Pete DeBoer, I think it was just, um, and this is part of the reason why we had success is you, I think you embody your coach and you, we weren't going to back down from anybody and Pete wasn't going to back down from anybody. You had Cam Jansen who pound for pound is probably the toughest and craziest guy I played with Eric Bolton, Eric Bolton too, who who's, he's not the biggest guy, but man, he, he is tougher than nails and strong as an ox and that guy can fight. And so you got those guys on your bench and Pete's like, you know what? It's a big rivalry. If you're going to come into our building and start that line and start that way. And Pete never said to us, I will say this. Pete never said to the fourth line, I want you guys to run everybody through the glass. It seems like that was the intent when the Rangers started it in our building. That, that's not, nobody said that. It was just like, right. okay, we're in it. We're starting. We get it. It's going to be a physical shift and we're going to play hard. But right. again, and and I feel kind of dumb about this, but apparently I'm the only one at Madison Square Garden that does not know that we're fighting because when I look at the starting lineups, it's uh, I'm starting against Stu Bickle. Or I'm not, right. not Stu Bickle, it's Brandon Dubinsky, who right. I just fought three weeks earlier, who couldn't play because he has he had some injury from the fight. So I mm-hmm. think there's no way that this guy's going to come back after missing three weeks from fighting me the last time we, he was able to play to right into the lineup right. to starting on the, the fighting on the opening drop. It just right. it never occurred to me. So mm-hmm. when we see the lineups in the locker room, it's it's me facing off against Dubinsky. I literally was only thinking about winning this face off and getting a first shift and going from there. Yeah. And I get out on the ice and then I see Stu Bickle come forward and Brandon Dubinsky go back. And that's when it was like, what, what's going on? Did he say I'm anything? Like, did, did Stu Bickle say anything to you? Yeah. Like before did he, he say something? All right, fair no, not, not, not during warm up, not at any point, just when he starts getting up, he goes, we're going. And then by that point I understood what was going on. I said, yeah, I, I remember in the, vi- in the fight, you could see Cam Jansen's already standing like six feet apart, ready to, he's already talking to, I think he was finding Brust, uh, rust at the time. So I think he was ready to go. Right then and there, Bolden was already chirping. And it's just funny because, like, you're standing, you're, like, looking down, just ready to take the face off. And I feel like you, like, looked up and you're like, oh, look, it's Stu Bickle. And it's like, well, I guess we're doing this now. (laughs) Yeah, so it clicked real quick what was going on. Like, okay, I guess we're going. And then uh, I started to get upset a little bit. So then I started talking to the bands. He's like, what are you doing out here? You know, like, 
it says you're taking the face off. And then um, I look over, and like I said, I was the only one at Madison Square Garden. I look over to the benches. I see the coaches screaming at each other. I look over this way. They're about to fight. And then it's like, wow, this is this is everybody's going right now. All right, here we go. And that's kind of yeah. how it went. Nice. <laughs> but that yeah, was, um, uh, but nothing, nothing was said. Pete DeBoer never said it, like this is what we're doing, and you guys are, you know, we're, we're starting hard and heavy, and um, it was. You know, and it wasn't unique for us to start either, so that's why it wasn't too terribly special. He, Pete, liked to use us to set the tone um, for a certain style of play. We'd win that faceoff, and we'd be on the forecheck, and Pete yeah. could count on that. So it wasn't unique that we would start, but um, in that situation, it it, tend, it turned out to be a different start than one we'd ever right. had before. Now, I also remember um, during you know because we look at the 2011-2012 playoffs, you guys go seven game series against Florida in the first round. Dramatic overtime win. Adam Henrique send you guys to round two. Then you guys pretty much dominate the Philadelphia Flyers, which I think a lot of people were surprised by how easily you guys were able to, you know, beat them. And then you come up and you're taking on the Rangers in the conference finals. And this is the first time, I believe, at that time since 1994 that the two teams had faced off in the conference finals. And this was going to be a classic battle. And you had several big moments in that series. Game two, you scored a goal that I think ended up tying the game at two. Uh, and eventually the Devils win win that game. Um, you also had a goal. You had, well, obviously you had the goal that really was the big one, and that was game uh, game five. You scored that late goal after the Rangers had come back from down 3-0 in that game. And then obviously you had a big goal um, in game number six, I believe, on a rebound. Because I remember Bernier, I think it was Bernier that made the pass. Giante mm -hmm. came in and you were kind of trailing it from behind and you were just able to knock it in on a rebound. And the other moment I remember is that when um, when uh, Marty got pushed down or shoved, whichever way you want to describe it, and then all hell broke loose. Bernier tries to jump on top of, I think it was, I think it might have been, I forgot exactly he jumped on top of, he went down. And I think Stu Bickle immediately tried to find you in that whole like scramble, if I remember correctly. So mm -hmm. You were certainly in the middle of a lot of the big moments in that series. So take us through just that entire six-game series against the Rangers, you know, Battle of the Hudson River, and you guys were able to, in dramatic fashion, come out on top and, and go to the Stanley Cup final. So take us through that in, in the um, – in the mind and eyes of Ryan Carter. Well, I do think so. If you go back to the first series against Florida, it seems even even now that the the first playoff series is is the most intense and the energy is mm -hmm. the highest and people are nervous. There's like a nervous energy. There's nervous mistakes. There's also uh, a certain amount of discipline that's in that series that I think slowly goes out of people's games as as the playoffs continue. So they're always tight. And if you even look at the first round this year. I think what five of the eight series went to game seven mm -hmm. and now, now it's just the, the number goes down and down and down. Now I know teams, they, they move from the playoffs, but on an average basis, it was, you know, 60 something percent go to a game seven. And now all of a sudden you've got 25% in round two going to right. a game seven and um, things change and, and stars start to find their ice and other things. But that, that Florida series, we, we were the visitors. They were the, they were actually, lower in the standings, but because they had won their division, um, they yeah, they, they had the home ice. Seed. They were the three seed. You guys were the yeah. six seed, I remember, going into that. Yeah, season. so they have home ice. And, right. Uh, yeah, even though we're the better hockey team. Right. Um, but that was a grind. Seven series. At the end of the series, so. <laughs> right. 
Uh, that was a grind, seven series and yeah. or seven game series, and then yeah, I think it I think it even surprised us how how well we we ripped right through Philadelphia. That comes down to matchups. I think we didn't beat Boston at all that year. Like had we had to run through Boston, there's no chance we probably would have been swept to maybe five mm-hmm. games. But we didn't have to play that club, which was fortunate for us, and right. uh, we matched up really well against Philly and we ran through them. But um, the, the reason I talk about the intensity of the first round is now because all of a sudden it's Devils Rangers. That's different than anything that I've ever played before. And mm-hmm. um, that that's going to be more intense and uh, a much different series than even the first round of, of any opponent. Right. So, it's, um, yeah, it was different. And I think everybody knew it. So you had a, a heightened sense. Um, you, you were able to, for me, I found it easier to, to lock in, um, to zone in and just right. be focused strictly on hockey. You know, it's two yeah. weeks of hockey. Um, this is a big deal. Let's go get it. Uh, but I think that's probably part of the reason that I was able to have personal success and Erlino was able to have some is, uh, Lou Lamarillo always preached it's, you know, like manage the, the distractions and make sure you're ready to play. And that's simply what, what we did and it worked, but, um, I think the regular season, uh, the fights, all of that stuff played a, played a role too. And I think the Rangers knew they had to play a certain way to beat us and we were disciplined and we weren't going to change. And over time that frustrated the Rangers and it frustrated the stars and uh, on that Ranger bench. Um, I remember Gabbert getting sat in one of the games and turning the puck over. I think I beat him and uh, he was probably the guy that had the point shot. He should have been in covering his guy. Um, mm-hmm. I ended up tipping that one in and one of them, and that might've been the game two goal or whatever it was. Yeah. That was um, the game two goal. Cause I think that was one where Salvador kind of just turned around yeah. and threw it at the net. Yeah. And he just perfectly deflected it. And that's Gabrick Scott and he doesn't have, and he's cheating. He's looking for offense. And that's what the right. devil's way of hockey did at the time is they're not getting anything. So these guys that are accustomed to space and accustomed to time and um, they've got speed and skill, they start to cheat for a little bit. And then that's where it's advantageous to have a line that can capitalize when they're cheating a little bit, simple hockey, throw the puck at the net, somebody tip it, it goes in and it comes, but it still counts. Right. And mm-hmm. that just started to frustrate them and it continued on. And I remember after the game six goal, uh, I think that was the first goal of the game. So we had scored right. game five. I had scored game five. We're up three rip, if I'm not mistaken, and they come yeah, back and tie it. It was three nothing um, in the first period, like not even five minutes into the game, you were already up. Rangers came back and tied it. And then I think like maybe two minutes after Gabrick had tied it, Gianta and Kovalchuk were in that corner and Gianta just made an unbelievable pass to you because you had a step on Carl Haglin on that play Haglin missed you. I don't know if he was, that was your, your, I don't know if that, you know, he was your guy in that situation, but you were able to get in front and just get a nice, you know, tap in from there. So that was the game five goal that gave you guys the lead. Yeah. It's, no, it's crazy. So uh, if you look at that play and that's where that I'm able to like actually, you know, be very specific with like where <laughs> you were in that play and everything like that. So. Right. No, and it pays to be situationally aware. So I was coming off the bench. We were in the middle of a change. Like Ilya Kovalchuk, it is not his job to be forward one on the four check, right? So he's uh, that's not his role. Uh, yeah. But again, like you need guys to do certain things, and and Ilya did this there. He was F one on the four check. He went and turned the puck over. Um, usually that's that's my job or that's Bernie's job, right? right. But 
Um, he went and did the dirty work and he finds Steven Gianta who eventually finds me, but I was coming off the bench and uh, the Rangers didn't recognize it in time. So I had a step and boom, Gianta finds me in the back of the net. And um, I remember did that. Did know you were there? Did he just kind of like, was he just trying to throw it at the net or did he know that you were, you were coming up right up the center? Of yeah, the I'm, I'm pretty sure they knew I was coming. So okay. Gio knew that somebody else was coming for a change too. I was screaming, you know, and, and okay. making sure that everybody knew that I was available. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, that, um, that, that was a big goal and he skated by the bench and you could see everybody was so deflated and mm -hmm. Madison Square Garden, you could hear a pin drop in there. It was amazing. You know, a lot of times the memories are of, of the roof being blown off a place, but that's one of my fondest is you're at uh, Madison Square Garden. It's a big right. deal. It really is. And you could hear a pin drop. That place, the roof was blown off of it when they tie it down 3 nothing. They tie it 3-3. Three, three. Uh, there's a ton of energy in that building. And then all of a sudden, Poof, flat, quiet. Silent. Yeah. Um, and you, you look at the faces of their, their coaches and it's uh, disbelief, a little bit of, yeah. um, you know, maybe frustration. Uh, they're disgruntled. And then to go back fourth line, game six, score the first one. They're like, what's, what's with this line? <laughs> you know, they, I think they're ready to hang us. But, that's uh, when it really started to become more obvious around the league that, that of the CVGV line, because it felt like every game you guys were doing something or scoring a goal. Right. And the, the story of the series should have been, how are you keeping Zach Parisi or Ilya Kovalchuk off the score sheet? Um, but instead it was, how come you guys can't solve this fourth line? You know, like, why can you not keep this fourth line off the score yeah. sheet? And they yeah. continue to beat you, but you don't have an answer. And they're like, what's well, because we're not thinking about this fourth line. We're, we think they're going to beat themselves. And uh, right. we didn't. We stuck with it. And um, it was pretty cool. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, that was a thrilling series. Uh, you know, speaking for myself, that was one of the most entertaining series I've ever been a part of as a fan, just watching it and how, you know, intense it was. And again, like I mentioned, I got this jersey the day of Game 5. So it was kind of like a perfect storm that um, you ended up getting the game-winning goal the same day on my birthday that I got this. So I thought that was kind of like a really special moment. Um and now when you go to the Stanley Cup Finals, obviously you went down 3-0 and then you were able to battle back to force a game six and you had already done something that no team in the playoffs had done at that point to the LA Kings and that was win a game at home because they had been right. undefeated going into the Stanley Cup Finals. They had won the first two games in New Jersey, but now you guys are there. And then we go to game six. And obviously for Devils fans, this is a touchy subject to discuss because obviously it was the turning point, I guess you would say, of the series. And that was the situation in which, um, you know, your line mate, Steve Bernier, um, hit Skidari behind the net. Uh, Skidari went down, and then the refs called, I believe they called a five-minute and game misconduct, I believe, if I remember correctly, on Bernier. They definitely threw him out of the game. And then you guys were on the penalty kill for what seemed like, as we keep saying, what seemed like 10 minutes. You guys were just constantly trying to kill off a long um penalty um uh, in your mind honestly and it's obviously been a while do you feel that that was that that penalty was justified do you feel like it should have been uh, a game misconduct you know well, like what were your thoughts in that moment and when it was called and uh i understand that this is kind of like a touchy subject as well to uh talk about yeah no i i i've got no problem answering the question it's uh, I, I don't think this is what I'll start with. Is I, do, I don't believe 
that's why we lost the series. It was not that penalty that, and, and that penalty kill. That, that's not the reason we lost the series. We lost it, and I have to go back and look at the game sheets. I don't fully remember, but I know Kopitar wins it in overtime in games one or two. I think the next one was a low-scoring yeah, game, game one, he won it, and then Jeff Carter won it in game two. In overtime. In overtime. Both games in overtime. By the Both games in overtime. Yeah. We, we got we got to win one of those. They hadn't right. they hadn't lost a game on the road yet in the playoffs. If we're able to in the Stanley Cup final, uh, we can change that narrative. This club is great on the road. If we mm-hmm. win game if we win game one and all of a sudden they lose game one on the road, that changes it. Even if we find a way to win game two and it's like okay, they've cracked the code. It's even going back to LA, right? Mm-hmm. That 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 would have been different when we won our game in LA. Um, so it, it really would have changed things, but for them to win those first two at home and overtime, I think that crushed us. And, um, so that's where we lost that one. Uh, the other thing I'll say about that play is we had the number one penalty kill in the NHL that year. And I, I, I don't know. I haven't fact checked this, but dude, if we look at it, I bet you it stands as one of the best penalty kills. It um, actually is top five five all time in playoffs. It's, it's one of the, it's one of the top five. I, I did check that. Even regular season, we were yeah. we had an unbelievable penalty kill, and mm-hmm. I think, man, I, I don't know, but you know how they add shorthanded goals and then they subtract the power play goals against and what your percentage is. We were like darn near a hundred, you know, mm-hmm. like it was amazing what our penalty kill could do, right. and we we a five minute major should have been no big deal. Maybe we give one up. And right. all of a sudden, we spot a goal on a physical play. That's our identity. We got to do that. Bernie has, and I'll I'll defend Bernie till the end. He has to make his check there. That was our job. That's why we had success in every other play, in every other turnover, and all these other big spot goals. It's because we played a certain way, and he did exactly what he needed to do. If it was me, I would have done the exact same thing. The thing I, I don't like as well that uh, Pierre Maguire had mentioned just seconds after the penalty was called that your other line mate, Steven Gianta, was boarded right in front of him and right in front of the ref, and your whole bench was up in arms about why wasn't that called seconds before. So I think that was kind of the combination of both of those, I think was kind of like a little bit of a a, a rattle thing, so to speak. Yeah, and I, I could see where Devils fans, and, and that happens sometimes. And in the good team, well, and we were a good team, but the teams that win find a way to, to overcome those challenges, mm-hmm. and uh, we didn't. Um, right. and, and again, that's not the reason we lost that series, but uh, there's also some unfortunate things that occur, you know, that – uh, you know, a little bit of blood makes it look a lot worse. So the referees gather up and then all of a sudden it's a five minute major instead of a two minute board and, um, or a charge or a rough or whatever it might be. Um, so things change that way too. Um, I, I've, as a four checker, I've always never loved the fact. Um, I do believe that they should put, and now this is one spot and I'm not calling Skidari out whatsoever. But if you have a guy, it's my job to forecheck you and you know that. And if you come around the net with the puck and you've got your head up, you see me coming. Um, it's my job to hit you and you should know that. Right. So you, you, you can't make a play then or keep the puck in your feet and turn your back the other turn way. Back, right. Because I'm I'm committed from the blue line to hit you. Yeah. Stop. You can't stop yeah. yourself from going right out. I mean I mean you you can stop or you can you can not hit them or you can do certain things, but at the same time, like you've got to own it a little bit. Like I read you and I saw you coming around, I got the angle on you, and now you're seeing you're staring down my barrel and you right. want to avoid it. And so there and and that's not Skidera's fault at all. Um it's just one of those things where it's I think the the refs should have a chat with 
the defenseman sometimes and say, hey, you have to be careful. Like that was a penalty, but next time maybe it's not going to be because um, it's his job to hit you. And if you turn and show your back, that put you in a dangerous spot. Like if Scuderi takes that one straight on the chest, it hurts a lot more, but that's no penalty. Mm -hmm. That's the difference, right? Um, So uh, that's fine. Again, if I was Scuderi, I would have done the same thing. If I was Steve Vernier, I would have done the same thing. So so, uh, I'm not calling any of those guys out, but that penalty kill was good and we should have killed it off. We shouldn't have given three up. We spot on three goals and that was it. It took the wind out of our sail. Yeah, and um, you know the other two things from that that I I, I always wanted to know because obviously we thought about it from a fans' perspective, um, but you know obviously none of us, not a lot of us get a chance to hear from a players' perspective. Going into that game six, did you guys firmly believe that if you won game six, you were definitely going to win game seven? I know that probably sounds like a ridiculous question to ask, but that was kind of something I'm curious because I know some of the Kings players had mentioned that they did not want to go back to Jersey for game seven because I think they also I think they certainly felt that they were in pretty deep trouble if they had to go back to Jersey for game seven. But like, what was your guys like feeling going into game six? Did you, did you feel that that same way? I think so. And I think that's why we started with a lot of energy. Um, we got to our game as early as we could and we, we tried to make it physical and uh, that I think you go back and I don't think people think about it or give enough credit to it, how hard it is to go from, LA to New Jersey, New Jersey. <laughs> and then back and forth and back and forth and right. and what that does to your psyche and stuff, changing time zones and have to be in uh, spot on, like you're at the most critical point of your playing career, your lives, mm-hmm. right? And in terms of hockey and uh, you're battling time zones and um, forecasts and all sorts of different stuff, right? And pressures. And um, I think going back for a game seven, New Jersey would have been good. It's they're packing their bags. They could have won it at home. Just go right out to the beach, um, have their little Stanley Cup party, and life is grand. Turned out to right. be that way for them. Had we won that one, things change a little bit. You got to come back to Jersey, and of all course. of a sudden, you know, we got a little energy about doing something that nobody's done, or or you know, coming yeah. back from three rip to win this, and um, that that would have been challenging um, for I think for the Kings for sure, but. Um, they closed this out before they got to that. Yeah, and obviously, you know, for me being as young as I was, it was it was obviously not like devastating, but it was sad. Um, and uh, you know, as a kid, you you think, well, we'll be back next season. And obviously, little, little did a lot of us Devils fans know that it, uh, we haven't had a whole lot of success since that point. But it is certainly, as the years go on, it's something that we remember. Now, the last question I have, just quickly from that game, was after the game, did. Did Steve Bernier say anything to the team about the sit about you know after all that transpired anything like that? Did he say anything? Because I I can't imagine what he must have been feeling like after he had gotten yeah. thrown out and things like that, and knowing that he no longer could contribute to the team um, in that game. Yeah, I think I think he tried to apologize, and I think he got laughed out of the room because there's <laughs> it, it, it legitimately like was there, he he did what he should have done and, and right. He, he did his job and played his mm-hmm. role. There's, and um, like I said, I'd defend him to, to no end here because it, it was not his fault whatsoever. And then um, even if you, you look back on it, we had, again, we had the number one penalty kill and they should have cleaned up after it. It should have been totally fine. No big deal. The biggest thing should have been, we're going to miss Steve Bernier because he's a critical piece. And, mm-hmm. um, but no, yeah, he, he tried to do it. I think he tried to apologize, but 
under no circumstances was anybody going to say, uh, yeah, that one's on you, man. You know, like, cause it, it wasn't at all. <laughs> that's fair. No, that's fair. Again, these are, these are things that obviously, you know, I've always been curious about. So the last like couple of quick things I wanted to get your perspective on is focusing now more on the present. Cause obviously that's what people also want to hear. I want to talk first quickly about the Minnesota wild. Um, and this past season, obviously it didn't end the way that I think a lot of Minnesota wild fans would have liked you know, getting bounced in the first round by St. Louis, which again, not one of the teams you want to get bounced out by. Um, and they made a lot of moves at the deadline, getting Marc-Andre Fleury and obviously trying to position this team to make a long run in the, in the Stanley Cup playoffs. And now they're, they have a lot of decisions to make now with the big buyouts uh, coming from both the Zach Parise contract and Ryan Suter. Just talk to us uh, just quickly about what you, obviously, you know, how you felt the season went for this, for for the Minnesota Wild, and what um, what should be the expectation moving forward going into 2022-23? Well, it was a great season for the Wild, and uh, the success. I mean, the record: 50 wins, 113 points, franchise records. They scored more goals than they ever have before. The brand of Wild hockey. I think Devils fans can relate to this. There's a certain stigma to a style and a brand of hockey. Mm -hmm. And I think the wild and the devils kind of had similar, um, like similar identities where it was going to be. Especially when Jacques Lemaire first came there, like when the wild first came into the league and Jacques Lemaire was the coach, he brought in that same similar uh, identity. So that's what fans around here got accustomed to is like, we're going to win two to one, three to two. It's going to be a tight checking game. We've never had a superstar um it's going to be four lines 60 a goaltender we're going to play a system and Mm -hmm. the the wilds they were able to to break that mold this year and briefly in Kirill Kaprizov and the exciting way he plays Kevin Fiala they've got two stars um and then all of a sudden Bill Guerin's not afraid to to run out there and get Marc-Andre Fleury like like Flower the star guy like you know three Stanley Cups and um, so it, it was an exciting brand of hockey and for a lot of ways, this season was a massive success, but, uh, I think the number one gauge is winning and they, they wonder in the regular season, they couldn't do it in the playoffs. And there are some people around here that are going to say, wow, that sucks. And the playoff format sucks because the wild were, you know, the, the second best team in the West or whatever it was. And the blues are the third and here they go playing each other in the first round of the playoffs. That's stupid. And, um, but there are going to be some people that say to beat the best, you got to be the best, or right. I should say to be the best, you got to beat the best. Mm-hmm. And, um, they wild were healthy and they should have been able to beat the blues. There's no reason they shouldn't have because they were healthy. They had all their pieces. Mm-hmm. Everybody was ready to go, ready to play. And the blues just beat them. Um, unfortunate ending to the season. It happened really fast. And I think it really surprised everybody how quickly it ended with the success of the regular season. And then the hype into the postseason to six games, boom, that's it. And it looked like they had control of that series too. It was two, one, um, going into game four for the wild. And all of a sudden the blues win three in a row. It's like, what's it over at six? Like what in the heck? Um, but I think that after the dust has settled, the wild learned some things about themselves that Kirill Kaprizov is the real deal. And he looks like a guy that, um, is a superstar and a superstar that's driven by winning. And you look at Connor McDavid, Nathan McKinnon, uh, and it depends who you want to look at down in Tampa, but you get some of these guys, these stars, and mm-hmm. they're legitimate 
game changing, different level athletes, players, um, winning seems to follow them and they've got their guy in Kaprizov now. And I think that's exciting. And everybody has that, I know that thought in the back of their mind, okay, we've got the guy, um, yep. we've got him. And where do we go from here? Now that's where it's going to be challenging. They've, they've got some cap issues with, uh, the contracts of Zach Breezy and Ryan Suter. They're going to have, I don't know, it was 10 to 12 to $14 million in dead cap space. They've positioned themselves pretty well with some prospects in the pipelines to where if these guys, um, can jump in and be a Dawson Mercer and be a good player that uh, produces offensively, isn't caught up in the moment, and mm -hmm. are good NHL players right out of the gate. The Wild are going to be good, and they're going to be a handful for, for the next little while, bunch of years, as long as number 97 wears the green sweater. Um, if they miss on some of these guys, they might be in trouble for a little while. Um, but right. uh, they have some prospects, Marco Rossi, Matt Boldy looks like he's going to be a legit player too. So um, if, if some of these, these guys that they've picked, they had stockpiled picks the last couple of years, I think to position themselves to buy out these contracts, knowing right. that they're going to need entry level deals and guys to contribute. So um, they've, they've got everything in place. Now it's just a matter of if these guys turn out to be good NHL players, the wild will be okay. I like that you mentioned Dawson Mercer. I do appreciate that because obviously he had a really strong rookie year with the Devils. And uh, also I'm very much looking forward to seeing what Jesper Wallstad eventually does once he comes over to the NHL because I was blown away by him in the draft and I was hoping that the Devils would select him. And um, obviously the, the Minnesota Wild were able to, to get him. But still, I, I have very high hopes for Jesper Wallstad, which is good because then you have a really, really talented rookie goaltender down the road. Now, obviously you mentioned Mercer and – we talk about the Devils. You look at the Devils, and obviously, over the last decade, we've made the playoffs once, and uh, we do have a lot of really, really talented pieces, and we have a lot of cap flexibility going into this offseason, and General Manager Tom Fitzgerald talked about making another big splash and really putting this team in a position where we make the playoffs next year. I mean, that basically has been the mindset that Damon Severson had put out at the end of the season this year, that the rebuild is over. It's time to start winning. So I want your opinion of this New Jersey Devils team and, um, you know, what has really stood out to you the most, um, especially from this young core of guys like Nico Keisher, Jack Hughes, uh, Jesper Bratt, Sharon Govich, Mercer, just to name a few. Well, I think those guys illustrate that it, the, the Wild have to really be fortunate if they're going to hit on some of these young prospects to jump in and be good players. The difference is – Hughes and Hisher had to be um, they had to be the go-to guys early on, mm -hmm. and and it was more given to them. And the, any support piece that the Wild have is going to be exactly that—a support piece where mm -hmm. they're not going to be the guy relied upon to do those things. It took these guys, I think, a little bit of time to figure out the NHL to get their bodies in a spot where they can compete, where they can play 82 day, um, and and be good. I think they're there. I think they've figured it out and they've had spurts. And I think if you're a Devils fan, you look at, at the spurts of a good hockey and say, Hey, these guys are starting to figure it out. And um, with the summer off and mentally more mature, physically more mature an understanding of the, the offense, the style of game that we have to play um, even things like on the power play, the special teams, what works, what didn't work. They've, they've got another year under their belt, but that core seems to be coming into their prime in terms of their winning years. So you've got Hughes and these guys that you've got the pieces there. Um, now it's a matter of taking the next step. And it, it seems like the Devils think that they're a veteran piece or two away from really making a run at it and, mm -hmm. and being a viable 
a viable team. So I, I think in terms of the players, they're right there. I think the question mark is obviously going to be in goaltender. Uh, what are they going to do in net and how they solidify that a little bit? Maybe the blue line um, in, in some regards too. Will, will some of these guys step up and be better than they were this year? I think there's room for some improvement on their back end um, mm-hmm. and, and these guys can do a little bit more. But I think the core players out front, um, they seem primed and ready to make a big step next year. And I think that, you know, you nailed it right on the head. I mean, that's been, that is the expectation for a lot of us going into next season is that next season is the year where these guys take another major step forward and that we, you know, really get into the playoffs because that's what we're trying to get back to. We're trying to get back to the level that you, the CVGV line and that 2011-2012 team brought um, during that uh, during that run because we want to get back to that because we know and you know yourself from playing in New Jersey for a couple of years and being in the playoffs with the Devils, you know how crazy that the Prudential Center, the Rock, can get during playoff time. Now, my last question to you, Ryan, and again, thank you so much for doing this today. We appreciate it. Is simply this: give us your opinion of your time with the New Jersey Devils. Like, what what were the things that stood out to most to you in the short time that you that you were in the Garden State? and uh, working for Lula Morello and everybody in the organization at that time? Well, I'll say this, and because I think it's a pretty solid endorsement. I had my college coach reach out to me after I was done playing because they wanted to, to put a photo up on, on the college rank, and he's like, what jersey do you want to be in? And he assumed it was the Wild because I'm from Minnesota, and that's where I finished right. playing. And I said, you know what? No, I think – I think I'd prefer you to put me in a devil's jersey up there because I identify as a devil, you know, and I feel like when I reflect on it that I'm mostly a New Jersey devil. Uh, so I, I think in order for that to be the case, it was there was a good culture there and there was good leadership and uh, winning didn't hurt at all. But I, I don't think that winning was an accident. I think that we you put all those pieces together and, and that's how you win. It's not just you put a group of a good hockey players together, they go out and win. There's more to it than that. And uh, I think that group had it. Um, a lot of good humans, uh, a lot of good families. And uh, I loved it. I, I actually loved New Jersey too. We lived in Hoboken. Then we had a daughter and moved in um, West Orange area kind of a little bit right in that spot. So uh, we, I, I loved it. We loved it. I love the energy of the area. Um, love the energy at the rink. Um, so, I mean, that, that's my assessment of it is, is nothing but good thoughts and good feelings. And um, again, I think it's a big endorsement that when somebody says, like, w- when you reflect on playing, what jersey are you wearing when you're doing it? And for me, it was a devil's jersey. Well, Ryan, I really loved talking with you today. This is absolutely phenomenal. Um, if you had told me a decade ago that I would get a chance to talk to you and, and interview you, I would have never believed it, but I, I'm so happy that I got the chance to talk to you and learn about, you know, obviously your time in New Jersey and getting your perspective on some other things. But before I go, because I do this with all my guests, let the folks at home know where they can find you on social media and also talk about the podcast in which you are a uh, co-host of. So the floor is yours, my friend. Yeah, so I, I should be better at this and know my handles and stuff. But uh, Ryan, Ryan, I think it's Ryan underscore Carter twenty two at Twitter or Instagram, one of those two. But if you search Ryan Carter in hockey, I think it'll pop up. Uh, uh, but yeah, and then uh, I do the color for the Wild now. And, and growing up in Minnesota and seeing the Wild and the the fan base here in terms of the other sports, there's there's this mantra kind of that it's 
like the fans are afraid to engage a little bit because they they feel that they're only going to get hurt. And this year was another perfect example of it is we're all in on the Minnesota Wild, 113 points. We're going to win a cup. This is the year. And then 2-1 lead in the series, and then they lose three in a row. And it's like, wah, wah, wah. And then it's, wow, we're never going to win. We're cursed. This is terrible. There hasn't been a championship in Minneapolis, St. Paul since the Twins in 1991. So we, uh, I started the podcast because I do believe, like, how does how does Tampa do it? And then all of a sudden the football team wins and the hockey team wins and Boston's got baseball, football, hockey. Yeah. How are they all winning? And I do believe that the fan base has some ownership in that and players can feel a nervous energy. So if, if you've got a one-goal game the final 10 minutes and the fans are feeling like, boy, it's only a matter of time before they blow this lead, it happens. It's like these self-fulfilling prophecies. So you need to almost train the fan base or get them to believe like the positive things are going to happen. Like there's no chance that this team comes back. Like we've got a little bit of magic and we can deal with this. So uh, that's kind of what the podcast is about. It's a wild podcast, Stanley on seventh. It's uh, it's fun. It's entertaining. Uh, we like to keep it lighthearted, but we cover the wild. And uh, we also try to, to train and teach fans how to, how to stay on the positive side and not get sucked into the, uh, you know, the, the poor me mentality or, or thinking that the wild are never really going to fail them every time. And I try to do that as best as I can with uh, the Devil's State of Mind podcast. Ryan Carter, thank you so much for doing this to me. It was an absolute pleasure. And we will definitely have you on the podcast again, my friend. Thank you so much for doing this. All right, Neil. Thanks, my man. Hey, appreciate you buying that jersey, too. I think it's probably <laughs> you and my parents might be the only two with yeah, it. But I hey. I just thought the name on the back, too. If I just like turn around a little bit. There it is. Look at that. <laughs> there we go. So I got it. Uh, I got it all good. good. I had that stitched. It was it was perfect. And uh, I oh, have man. kept it ever since. So, um, <laughs> But again, thank you so much, man. We appreciate this. Yeah, no, thank you. That's cool. Appreciate it.